You're listening to The Gospel, Race, and Justice, a sermon series at Sojourn Church Midtown. Join us as we have a conversation about ethnicity, reconciliation, and the church. Hear the word of the Lord. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Now, I found out in first service that uh, you can't tell a lot from people's eyes. And so make sure if you're tracking with me in this message that you speak it with your mouth, okay? So I can't see you with your eyes. So if you're tracking at different times, then feel free to express that with your mouth. We looked at Acts chapter 6. We're going to be working through this text from the Word of God this morning. Now, I want us to think about something as we begin, and that is sometimes you can make a commitment that costs you more than you expected to pay. You ever made such a commitment? Sometimes it's little things. You go to the store and you load up the cart and you think, you get to the checkout line and you're thinking, how on earth did we spend that much and did we really need three different kinds of ice cream? You ever had that that happen where you make a commitment? It's like, I didn't mean to make that commitment. Sometimes it happens in larger ways. It happens in ways where there's a relationship that you realize is costing you way more than you thought it was going to a job that costs you more. Sometimes you make a commitment that costs you more than you expected. I want us to see something. In this series on race and gospel and justice, it's gonna cost us. I want us to be upfront about that. I want us to be honest with ourselves and with one another that when we engage this issue, it is likely to cost us more than we expected and change us more than we planned. I just found that out over the last couple of weeks, literally just last week, received from somebody that I was supposed to come and speak at a conference sometime this fall. And they said, if you are not willing to affirm this statement against social justice based on other things you've been saying, we're gonna, we're gonna disinvite you from this particular conference at that point. Now, I'm not saying that to brag or anything like that. I'm not saying to celebrate it. I'm just saying that it's costly. I'm also not complaining about it. Because there's others that have cost it far more than it's costing me. But I want you to understand, you start talking about this issue and it's going to be costly to you. And I want us to be honest with one another in our church, in this community of faith and say, you know what? We're willing to pay the price to do this. Because in some sense, in American culture, you're you're having your house, that closet 
that just collects everything and it's really nasty inside the closet, okay? There's a closet, you open that door and maybe during spring cleaning, you're like, I'm gonna actually clean that closet. And then you open the door of that closet, you look in and you're like, where do I even start? This is such a mess in this closet and you just close the door. Well, these issues in our culture are like that closet. We open it up and it's messy inside and there's stuff I don't even wanna look at. There's stuff that's gonna be costly to look at and to engage with. And most churches have just shut the door. I'm not gonna deal with it. I'm not gonna look at it. We're not shutting the door. We are not shutting the door. We're saying we're gonna go in there and we're gonna look at this and we're gonna deal with this and we as a community are going to talk about this. And I just feel a heaviness about this particular topic and this particular moment. I really do believe we are in America at a point that we have not quite been there since 1955 when the photographs of Emmett Till's murdered corpse were put into magazines. And people saw the awfulness of what others knew had been happening all along. And I believe we are at a cultural moment in which the same thing is happening. People are becoming aware. And we as Christians have to think of how will we deal with that in a gospel-centered way. But I also feel a heaviness because I know, and I'm fully aware, that there are things that you have experienced, many of you, that I've never experienced. I've never had the experience of being out jogging and somebody, as I know some of you have, driving by and throwing out a, a racial epithet. Never had that. I've never had the experience of being pulled over and wondering how this is going to turn out and being uncertain how it's going to turn out. I've never had that. Some of you are, are living at this place where you're both African-American and female or Latina, and I certainly don't pretend to understand the ways you may have been overlooked or silenced or expected to conform to standards of culture that God never made you to conform to. I don't pretend to know that. But I do know this, I do know this. I know that you and everyone else, we're so much more than the patterns of our culture. Because every ethnicity, every race, every person is in the image of God and you are heaven's handmade masterpiece as you are. But I also know this beyond that, even though I may not understand, we serve a God together who does understand. That is something Christianity offers to the world and to us in these circumstances that no other religion can offer. And that is a God who has entered into human pain and a God who in Christ knows what it is like to be marginalized and oppressed and afflicted. We see that in Isaiah chapter 53. Here's how it describes Jesus. He was despised, he was rejected. He was one that people turned away from. They didn't see him as attractive. And it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. We serve a God who understands. And most of all, I know this, that despite the differences between us, and there are so many stories that come together in this place today, there is one gospel that speaks to us all and meets us where we are. There is a gospel that is good news. That's what the gospel means. And that gospel, it tears down barriers that nothing else can. And that is our hope. And when I speak of the gospel, I mean simply this. 
I mean the substitutionary life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ by which God makes us right with himself and invites us into his kingdom in which he is remaking the world into what he designed it to be. That's the gospel. And today I want to look at how this gospel reshaped the early church into a multi-ethnic community. And we are going to find that that experience they had was gritty and it was costly, but it changed the world. And I happen to believe that it can still change the world today. And here's what we see in this text. We see that the same gospel that saves us is also a gospel that shakes us and reshapes us and shatters the structures that separate us. That's what I want you to get today. The same gospel that saved us is also a gospel that shakes us, reshapes us, and shatters the barriers that separate us in our world. And so let's look at Acts chapter 6. What we see as we look at Acts chapter 6, first off, is that the church is multiplying. The church is growing at this point. That's the first thing. It says the church is multiplying or growing, which isn't surprising. This is literally the only church in the world at that moment. So in this time, that's the only church in the whole world is this church in Jerusalem that is drawing together Jewish people from many places who see Jesus as their Messiah. And here's what happens. The multiplication of this church, it unmasks ungodly social structures. And one of those that it unmasks is a tension between two different groups of Jews. And so what we see here is that there are divisions that are revealed in this text. And here's what it says. It says that the Greek speakers or the Hellenists are speaking or murmuring or complaining against the Hebrews. Now to understand this text, we have to unpack these two groups of people and understand who they were. So let's unpack it. Let's take a look at who these people were. There's first off this group that is identified as the Hebrews. These are Jewish natives of Judea and Galilee. That's where they're from. They're from Judea and Galilee. They, like everybody else in their world, they are influenced by Greek culture. But, but among themselves, they're going to speak the Aramaic language. And they seem to have seen themselves as more faithful to the faith of their fathers than other Jews. That's how they saw themselves. They saw themselves as more faithful, it's a little bit better than, and they were the majority culture among the Jewish people at this time. We could look at a map and kind of get an idea of where these people were. They would have been in Judea, up in Galilee, a few of them probably over in Perea and those areas there. Whereas then the rest of the world, there were Jews scattered around the rest of the world, but probably between 70 and 90% of all Jews in the world at this time lived in some of those regions you see right there. So this group of Hebrews they viewed themselves as more faithful to the faith of their fathers than everybody else. Now then there's the Hellenists or the Greek speakers. These were people who had moved to this region, moved to Judea from other parts of the Roman Empire. So they had relocated to there from other regions in the Roman Empire. They didn't speak Aramaic at all. They were the minority group. There was between 10 and 20% of the Jewish population was from this group. And some of them, this is important, were Jews not by blood, but by choice. They were Gentiles who had become Jewish and then recognized Jesus as their Messiah. They weren't even ethnically Jewish at all. And it seems like that these so-called Hebrews looked down on the Hellenists. 
look down on this group that comprises about 10 to 20% of them. So here's what's happening. A social structure of ethnic privilege from the world around them is being imported into the church. That's what's happening. An ethnic privilege from the world around them, their Jewish culture is being imported into the church. And this Hebrew majority is in charge and those that didn't fit that culture are being overlooked. Now, some of you may think about this, what about, wasn't there ethnic privilege of the Jewish people to begin with? And you may think, what about that? But here's what's important for you to recognize. It was never ethnic privilege, even in the Old Testament. It was about God's covenant with his people was what it was about. Even in the Old Testament, you think of people like Ruth and Rahab were Gentiles who became part of the Jewish people. It was always about God's covenant with his people and those who were faithful to him. So here's where the tension begins to show up. It begins to show up in the daily food distribution, daily food distribution to the widows. Now, To understand this, we have to think through the church's heritage, what they were doing, and they were actually following through with something that had been in the Old Testament as well. If we were to look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, we would find that there are three particular groups of people that God's people were to care for because they were people who could be marginalized. And they were widows, immigrants, and orphans. Those are the three groups that they were supposed to pay special attention to in the Old Testament. Well, in the New Testament, the church continues to pay special attention to those who can be overlooked and marginalized. That was part of what the church did. In fact, an emperor a few centuries later complains, he's a pagan and he complains about, says that the reason the Christianity is growing is because of their loving service to outsiders. These Galileans, these Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours too. They cared for people who were marginalized and struggling. And one of those groups was widows. Because you see, there was no social security system in their world. Your only social security was your family. And if you did not have a family to take care of you, to watch over you, to meet your needs, you had nothing as a widow. So the church was saying, we are going to care for the needs of these widows who could be overlooked. But there was a problem in the pattern of provision. It says the Greek-speaking widows were being overlooked. This minority group in the church, many of whom may have had no family around them. They'd moved here from other places. They had no family around them. And they were being overlooked, it says, in the daily food distribution. And so this issue wasn't just about bread, It was about caring for people. It was about shepherding people. It was about what will we do when we see social structures coming into the church that place one group above another. That's what it's about. It's about how will we bear one another's burdens. And here's what the church could have said. They could have said, those Greek speakers, they're probably just imagining things. Things really aren't bad. There's really nothing that's going on here. They're imagining. I mean, I don't feel any prejudice toward them. In fact, one of my best friends is a Greek speaker. And after all, don't all widows matter? That's what the church could have said and could have done and could have declared in this. They could have brushed it aside and tried to paint over it. But that's not what the church does. 
the church decides they will deal with this and they respond. Why? Because the same gospel that saves us is also a gospel that shakes us and reshapes us and shatters the structures that separate us. And so the apostles, it says, gather together the fullness of the disciples or the whole community of the disciples. They gathered them together and said, we're going to face this issue. We're not going to ignore it. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're going to deal with it. And we're going to deal with it together. And the apostles say, it's not for us. It's not pleasing if we actually just take this over. See, the apostles could have expanded their power and they could have gone and they could have just taken over everything and taken over these tables, handed out the bagels and handed out everything else that was going on at these tables. That's what they could have done, but that wasn't their role. They weren't called to do that. The calling of the apostles was to be those who shaped the culture of the church by proclaiming God's word and by praying for God's guidance. That was their role. And so they said, this is what God has called us to do. So here's what we want you to do. We want you to select seven spirit-filled men, filled with spirit and wisdom, and we want you to enlist them. They told the church that, enlist them. And what happens next is beautiful. I want you to pay attention to those names. I know to us, they just seem like an odd set of names, most of whom, few we've heard, but most of which we haven't. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte. All seven of these are Greek names. Now, that doesn't guarantee that they were all a Greek-speaking minority. That doesn't necessarily, because sometimes Aramaic-speaking natives of Judea and Galilee, they also had Greek names. But in a context where it's just mentioned this issue of Greek versus Hebrew, when it's just mentioned that, suddenly you have a clustering of seven Greek names, one of whom is not even ethnically Jewish at all. It says, Nicholas, the proselyte. You know what that means? That means he has been a Gentile who has become a Jew, who has now said that my Jewish faith is fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah. Here's what happens here. The church recognizes the reality of ethnic privilege and rejects it by raising up spirit-filled servant leaders. That's what the church does. And at least some of them are representative of this Greek-speaking minority. But if we look at the book of Acts as a whole, it actually gets even better. Because there's another time, just a few chapters on, where it lists names again, and it's helpful for us to see that. If we were to look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 1, we would see another listing of names. It says, now in the church at Antioch, this is the church that was in view last week in Galatians chapter 2 that Jarvis talked about. The church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. We're talking about some of the leadership of this church. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod and the ruler, and Saul. Notice the diversity here that has grown already as the church has spread. You have, these are the teachers, leaders, prophets in the church. Barnabas and Saul are Jewish. Manan is part of, of Herod's household. Lucius is from Cyrene. That's in Africa. That's modern Libya is where Cyrene is. Then it says, Simeon called Niger. It's the Latin word for black. This is somebody saying Simeon, who is African, and this is what they called him. Simeon Niger was what they called this man. 
It indicates his origin, where he's come from, what his appearance is. It indicates that. In the text here, now here's what I want to ask. As we look at this, why did the Holy Spirit inspire Luke to include these lists of names that demonstrate a growing multi-ethnicity in the church? See, every word of the Bible as it was originally written, every word in this text came because of the superintendence and the design of God. There's not a single word in this text as originally written that God himself did not ordain from all eternity would be there. And they put these lists of names in this text so they matter. These names matter. We see if the mission of the church is nothing more than telling individuals how to get your life right with God and how you can be in heaven when you die and get your sins forgiven. If that's all the mission of the church is, and if that's all we're up to, there is no reason to list these. If it's only vertical, it's only you and your relationship with God. But it's not only vertical, it's horizontal as well. It is about reconciling people to one another. And if it's about reconciling people to one another, these names matter because they show people being reconciled to one another across ethnic barriers in their culture. These names, these words matter. They really do. Because when you remember people's names, you're reminded they're real people with real stories and their stories shape our stories. That's why these names matter. The intent of these names is for you to hear their stories and for your story to be shaped by this. That's why when we lament racial injustice, we don't just speak of it in these vague terms. We say names, Brianna, George, Ahmad, others. Why? That's saying these are real people and real stories and we want their story to shape our story. And this text is doing that in a joyous and beautiful way saying we want these names to shape our story of who we are as the people of God. So what happens next? They choose these men. They affirm these men as leaders. What happens next? We see it in verse 7. And what we find that it says in verse 7 is that the word of God continued to spread multiplied even more after this happened. But multi-ethnic multiplication came at a cost. Do you know what happens in the next chapter? The first martyr. (laughs) And then the persecution gets worse. And then it gets worse. And it continues and persists throughout the rest of the book. Multi-ethnic multiplication came at a cost. It got gritty. And it's going to cost us too. Breaking down barriers like this, it means some awkward conversations. It means some painful examinations of our own prejudices. It means we're going to be targeted by those on the right and on the left. It's going to cost us sojourn. You don't come away from this where there is spiritual warfare and there are people who want certain divisions and divides to remain. You don't get away from this without cost. It's going to cost you. It will cost us. As a church, 
But we have a comfort that the world does not, and that comfort is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel that draws us together. And that same gospel that saves us is also a gospel that shapes us, and it shakes us, and it shatters the structures that separate us. So what do we do with this truth? We've got two applications that I want you to get out of this. And that is, first off, I want to challenge you, show the world what the gospel can do. We often are very focused on, and rightly so, rightly so, on what the gospel is, and we should be. But we sometimes forget to emphasize what can the gospel do. What should the gospel do? And the gospel is both vertical and horizontal. It reconciles us to God, but it also reconciles us to one another. And when the church in Acts 6 saw that there was ethnic privilege, they took steps to right what was wrong, and that gave a defense of the power of the gospel to do what no human being can do, because they dealt with it. And that is so different from what happened in churches in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries and after. Because a system of ethnic privilege emerged beginning in the late 16th and into the 17th century. And in that system of ethnic privilege, of racialization, racialization is just when some aspect of, a, of an individual or a group of people is taken as something that ranks one person above another. In that racialization, those who were African were viewed as being lower than everybody else. That's the reality. With a motivation of being able to enslave people, particularly for the new world, to them we call North America. That is historical reality. And here's what I want you to see in this. Christians, churches, did not fight against this. And they did not even simply go along with it. They sustained it and supported it actively. We just need to be honest about this. We need to be honest with one another. We can't get to truth without honesty. And we need to be honest about this. This is what happened. Churches came up with theological justifications for this by stretching and straining texts of Scripture in the book of Genesis to be able to do that. There were even discussions among theologians over whether natives of Africa actually even had souls or were created in the image of God at all. That's reality. And let's understand that any form of racialization is a rebellion against God. Because God has declared in his word from Genesis chapter 1 forward that every human being is created in his image. There are not multiple images ranked. It's every human being in God's image and equal. And people were dehumanized. And with few exceptions, churches sustained it and supported it. Even when we get to the 18th and 19th centuries, the reality is that even as a few prophetic voices stepped up and spoke against this, most churches and theologians didn't. This racialized ranking remained in place, and was justified by churches and theologians. 
And just over the last couple of years, I've done a lot of reading historically. And one of the most just heartrending things, and I can find this not once, but multiple times in the sources. There were times in the 20th century, a century ago, when churches adjusted their schedules to accommodate Sunday afternoon lynchings. These are churches, real churches, which decided to adapt their schedule for something as horrific and awful as that. Folks, that's reality. We have to deal with and think about and consider that reality, and it persisted in the form of unequal housing, unequal education, and here in our city, in the latter part of the 20th century, Thriving African-American communities were pushed to the west side of town and there were specific promises made to them that were never kept by the city. That's just reality. There were promises made and those were never kept. Here's it got worse in terms of segregation in the 20th century. Where did it get better? 1940, Louisville was 70% segregated. By 1970, it was 89% segregated. During that same time period, African-Americans who came back here from World War II were denied being able to buy houses with GI Bill money. And everybody else was building wealth, and they were denied that. These are realities we've got to grapple with that still shape our world today. We live in a world in which that which is white is seen as normal or standard. And we in the church have got to recognize this and be a community, a countercultural community that rejects the categories we have inherited in these areas. We must. And some of you may say, I don't see it. And that's precisely the point. You don't see it. You don't see it. Because we live so deeply within it, we don't see it. Just over the past week, just thinking about things I've noticed over the past week yesterday, Took my children to Target and they like going with me as opposed to their mom because we go to the toy aisles. We go, we take a tour of the store and we go. Went down to the dolls aisle. Target, my generation, dolls, those dolls right there. 26 white dolls, one African-American doll with straight hair. That's the reality. I'm not saying that we need to go do something to Target. I'm saying that's the type of realities that are just part of the system in our world. I think about the fact of, of a couple of years ago, one of my children of African descent was sitting at the table and, and, and she asked for a certain crown, a peach pink colored crown, and I handed it to her and I noticed what she's doing. I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm coloring Jesus. I said, where did you, who told you that's what Jesus was like? Because if it's somebody at Sojourn, we we're gonna have conversation, okay? <laughs> because, but, but it wasn't. She said, I just, that's what he is. And I said, honey, Jesus was a lot closer to the color of you than me. That she was a lot, but how did she pick that up? Because we live in a culture that shapes us that way. This microphone I'm wearing, what does this imply about the color of the person who will be in charge and on the stage? What does it imply? And the issue is at Target or crowns or microphones. That's not the issue. I want you to see how we don't even notice the culture in which we live and the aspects of ethnic privilege that are woven into the world in which we live. 
That's what I want us to see. Where there are racialized expectations and racialized opportunities. And the question for us is, will we be more like the first century church or like the 20th century church? Who will be we be more like? And I am fully aware that what I just did is I opened that closet <laughs> that's messed up inside. And I know some of you are like, what do I even do about this? Well, I am so glad you asked what I should do about this. Because I'm going to give you five different ways that you can show the world what the gospel can do in these areas. I'm going to give you five ways. Some of you, you need to start at this point, And that is just loving God's multi-ethnic vision. Just love it. Love. The fact that people are together of different races and different tribes and languages. Just rejoice in that. And if you're at a point where I'm just not sure how to do that, give, recommend you a book. It's called The Gospel in Color, co-written by one of our pastors, Jarvis Williams. Take a look at that. Get a vision for just loving God's vision for his church. Second one, learn. Learn the full story. The things I've told you are not hidden somewhere. They are very public knowledge, and people are aware of them. I want to recommend to you a couple of books. Jamar Tisby, The Color of Compromise. Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, The, the, the Divided by Faith. I want you to look at and, and dig into those, learn the larger story. I want you third to listen. These are all different ways to show the world what the gospel can do. I want you to third, listen. No matter who you are, listen to people who have a different perspective than you. See how life looks from other perspectives. I love what John Perkins says about this. He says, there is no reconciliation until you recognize the dignity of the other until you see their view. Do I see the world from somebody else's perspective? Do I respect their dignity? Do I do that? Another one, the fourth one is lament. Lament. Take the space to lament that this is broken. It's really messed up. Take the space to lament this. And sometimes lament gets on its feet. And for a Christian, when lament gets on its feet, that's called protest. That's all protest is for a Christian, is lament when it gets on its feet. But here's what's beautiful. We as Christians can protest better than the world because the world doesn't have hope and because of that, the, the, there it gradually goes into rage and violence. But as Christians, do you know what we can do? We can protest with love and joy and hope. Why? Here's why. We know that our God is going to one day make everything right and new and make justice roll like a river. It may be in our lifetime. It may be in somebody else's lifetime. But we know that our God will do that. And because of that... We can have hope and confidence and joy. We don't need to give in to anger. We can have hope and confidence and joy and peace in what we do. And the last one of these, I really want to challenge you, is to look. Look inside yourself. Look for the ways that in your own heart, there are things you need to deal with. Look carefully. Show the world what the gospel can do. Second, just know this. God delights in our ethnicities, and so should you. 
God delights in your ethnicity. So should you. And here's how we see this in Scripture. God chooses to put in his word the growing multi-ethnicity of his church. God delights in that. God delights in that. And as we have people together who come from different backgrounds and different regions and different ethnicities, all of that together, here's what God's truth is like. It's like this beautiful jewel and each person sees it from a different perspective. And it's like a jewel that you cut different facets in. And the more facets it has, the more precious and beautiful it becomes. And if I see it from a multiplicity of perspectives, the same truth, it is more beautiful as I hear how others see it as well. God delights in your ethnicity. God delights in that. And and I want us to see that because that that's likely to change even the people who lead at times in churches. Sometimes, I remember a year or two ago, talking to a young man who was wanting to plant a multi-ethnic church. And I said, what is your plan for raising up and developing leadership that looks like the community you're in? And he said, well, I'm the Southern guy. We've got that. But we're wanting a multi-ethnic church. What are you doing to develop it? And how is your leadership eventually going to look like your community? And in the end, he couldn't come up with anything. And I said to him, it's a little bit harsh the way I said it, but I said, you don't want multi-ethnic church. You want a bowl of vanilla ice cream with rainbow sprinkles. That's what you want. That's all you want. You don't want the hard work of doing this. If you want the hard work of doing this, you're going to recognize what this church did, that there's leadership that is going to help lead you and that you're going to have to learn from That's what it's going to look like. And some of you are like, oh, does that affirmative action? Well, call it what you want. The Spirit affirmed it and they took action. Call it whatever you want. But that's what the Spirit led them to do in their church here. But also what that question reveals is an assumption that there are not Spirit-filled leaders available in every ethnicity. And I happen to believe the God that created us can also raise people up from a variety of backgrounds to lead his church. That's what God can do. See, God delights so much in your ethnicity that God's going to keep it for all eternity. Did you know that? It says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9 that he looks into this heavenly realm and it says that there are people from every tribe and tongue and nation. It doesn't go away in eternity. It's going to persist into eternity and God will keep nothing in his heavenly kingdom that is not beautiful and good. He's keeping your ethnicity for all eternity because he thinks it's beautiful and he thinks it's good and he loves it and he delights in it. That's why it's such ridiculous idiocy when people say we want to be colorblind as if you can be and you're trying to be more than God is (laughs) because God isn't. And so if God isn't, why should we try to be? We're not colorblind. We're color-blessed. And we should view it that way. As I think about this, I remember just thinking about the blessing of this. I remember the first church I ever pastored full-time. And the first church I pastored full-time was only about 40 or so people in central Missouri, rural area. And this first church I pastored there came one Sunday that I got up to deliver the, the welcome for the morning and there had been an African-American family come in, was sitting right there. I was just excited. This is beautiful. This is amazing. 
And, and so during the welcome time, I didn't quite make it back to them, but I saw two leaders of the church talking to them. I was glad about that. And then after the benediction, when I raised my head, I was going to head back and talk to them, these visitors in our church, and they were gone. So I started asking around, trying to locate them. And what I found out was that the two leaders of the church who were talking to them had said to them, there's a church for your people over in this town. This is not in the 50s. This is not in the 60s. This is in 1998. And I left that church. I left because the, the worst part of it was, was that I tried to deal with the issue. The people in the church, they just didn't want to deal with it. They said, oh, that's just the way Jim is. That's just the way he is with people. We don't need to worry about that. Nobody was willing to deal with it. I left. That church missed out on blessing with that. And it wasn't willing to deal with the social structures that stood in the way of blessing. My goodness, if I didn't walk away from that issue then, I'm sure not going to now. I'm not going to walk away from it now. Because that's reality that I've lived and that others have lived. And I don't want to see this church miss the blessing of God. Because that church did. And we won't. I pray that we won't ever miss that. But to do that, it takes the costly task of dealing with this. Of being honest with one another about this. That's what it takes. In the Lord's Supper itself, some of the reading I've done over the past several years, it was itself something that represented exactly what I've talked about. There was a time when, in communion, people coming forward for communion in the 20th century, that those who were white came first and everybody else came next. In Louisville, I can find you records in Louisville of that being done in churches here, in churches here. Now, what I want us to see is when we partake this meal together, it's an uprising against all of those lies that have been told. It's an uprising against that. It's a rejection of that. And here's what else it is. It is a moment when we leave our guilt and our shame on Jesus. See, my goal in this is not for any of us to leave here with guilt or shame. Because Jesus took care of that. But it is rather that because Jesus removed our guilt, because Jesus removed all of our shame, because Jesus dealt with that, we can be empowered to go out and to change the world in his power. It's not guilt or shame I want to leave you with, but with encouragement that by God's power, you can change the world. Not by our power, not because we're so strong. We are not. We are weak and we fail. But by God's power, do not leave with shame and guilt, but in the power of God's Spirit. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and broke it. And he took the cup likewise, he gave it to his disciples. At this time, take the bread, it's on top, the wafer on top. If you're a baptized believer in Jesus, take that as a representation of Christ's own body. And then drink in memorial of his blood that was shed for us, that wiped away our guilt.
wiped away our shame and opened the door for his spirit to be sent to empower us to go out into the world. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.